of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast, available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode this story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This episode's coming out on Christmas Day 2023, so we are talking about something that happens on a Christmas Day in history. That is the 1950 removal of the Stone of Schoon, also called the Stone of Destiny from Westminster Abbey. We've also gotten some requests for an episode on the stone, including from listeners Stephanie and Megan, and also... It was, of course, in the news earlier this year because it was part of the coronation chair used for the crowning of King Charles III. Uh, On top of all of that, it almost made an appearance in one of this year's installments of Unearthed because of some research that we will eventually get to in this episode. Depending on whose perspective you are reading, this was either a wanton theft, maybe even sacrilegious or treasonous, or it was the justified liberation of an artifact that England had stolen from Scotland. I used the word heist in the episode title because there are also aspects of it that feel kind of like a heist movie. And there is, in fact, a movie of this. It came out in 2008, and I did watch it over the weekend. So we're going to start by talking about some of the background on the stone itself. This is tricky to piece together because there are multiple contradictory mythical origins for the stone, and early accounts are simultaneously vague and contradictory. 
The stone has even had a whole list of different names. So the Stone of Schoon, the Coronation Stone, the Stone of Destiny, the Stone of Scotland, and the Fatal Stone among them. That last one comes from an obsolete use of fatal that meant decreed by fate or destined. That sense of the word fatal was declining by the 16th and 17th centuries. The two most frequently used names today are probably the Stone of Schoon and the Stone of Destiny. Schoon is a town in the historic county of Perthshire, Scotland. Now it is in the Perth and Kinross Council area. For centuries, Scotland's kings were inaugurated on a hill outside of Schoon Abbey, sitting on the stone. So, Stone of Schoon is a pretty straightforward descriptor of the stone and its meaning. That name first appeared in writing in the 1327 Lanarkust Chronicle. The name Stone of Destiny was first coined in the 16th century, and it was in fairly common use by the 18th century. But it became a lot more popular after the stone's 1950 removal from Westminster Abbey. Among other things, Ian Hamilton, who was one of the people involved with that removal, published a book about it in 1953 titled No Stone Unturned, The Story of the Stone of Destiny. But this name might actually stem from conflation with another stone, the Leofoyle, which is a standing stone on the hill of Terra in Ireland that is also called the Stone of Destiny. So Terra in County Meath is the seat of the High Kings of Ireland, and the Leofoyle has its own mythological origins involving being brought to Ireland by the semi-divine Tuadidanan. And according to legend, the Leofoyle would cry out or roar or sing when the rightful king of Ireland placed his foot on it. So there are some accounts that just confuse these two stones. They describe Scotland's stone of destiny as the one that screams, for example. But there are also accounts from the 13th and 14th centuries that claim that the stone of Schoon is the Leofoyle that it was moved to Dalriada for the coronation of Fergus McGurk, and then Kinaid McAlpin, king of the Scots and the Picts and Dalriada, moved it to Schoon in the 9th century. This would mean the stone now on the Hill of Terra is a replacement. Uh, Kinaid McAlpin is also called Kenneth I or Kenneth McAlpin, and was the first king to rule over most of what's now considered Scotland. So he is generally recognized as the first king of Scotland. To further complicate things, there are also two more mythical origins for the Stone of Schoon. One probably Scottish and the other probably English, but both of them involve this stone arriving in Scotland by way of Ireland. So, in the version that probably originated in Scotland, Scota, the daughter of a pharaoh, brought the stone to Scotland from Egypt, traveling through Ireland along the way. According to this legend, Scota was married to a Greek king named Giethelos. So Scota is the namesake of Scotland and the Scots, and Giethelos is the namesake of the Gaels and the Scots Gallic language. The earliest written account of this story is Baldred Bissett's Processus in 1301. The story that is most likely to be English in origin is that the Stone of Schoon was the stone pillow that the biblical figure of Jacob rested his head on when he dreamed of a ladder stretching up to heaven, with angels ascending and descending. In this version, the stone was brought to Scotland from the Holy Land, again by way of Ireland. The exact origins of both of these stories aren't really clear, but there's some suggestion that the one involving Jacob's stone pillow came from the monks at Westminster after the stone had been taken from Scotland to England. 
It was first recorded in writing by William Rischenger, Benedictine monk at St. Albans, in his chronicle, which dates back to the 1320s. But geological research on the stone suggests that it was not brought to Schoon from somewhere else. It was quarried locally. Its textures, colors, and minerals are similar to stone from the Schoon sandstone formation, which dates back to the Devonian epoch roughly 400 million years ago. So while the stone itself is hundreds of millions of years old, it was quarried a lot more recently. There are obvious tool marks suggesting how it was shaped and finished. It's possible that this was always meant as a seat for inaugurating Scotland's kings, but it may have originally been meant to be part of a building, like maybe a church, or it may have actually been used as part of a building and then later repurposed. Today, the Stone of Schoon is an oblong block, measuring 26 inches by 16 inches by 11 inches. That's 66 centimeters by 41 centimeters by 28 centimeters. There's an iron ring on each end, connected to an iron staple via sort of a twisted figure-eight link. These iron elements date back to the medieval period, but we don't know exactly when they were put into the stone. The first written mention of them is from 1823, but they were definitely there before that. One common idea is that the English put them on the stone while it was still in Scotland so they could carry it suspended from a pole. But there would have been a much easier way to carry it, like a cart or a wheelbarrow. Another possibility is that they were added after the stone was taken to England and that they were meant to help lower the stone into the coronation chair. Or perhaps they were meant to fasten the stone to something else so that it could not be removed from the chair. To add to all the things we don't know, we don't entirely know what the stone looked like before it was taken from Scotland. Some early descriptions of the stone actually describe it as marble, not sandstone. One such account is Baldred Bissett's 1301 Processus, which calls it the, quote, royal seat of marble. Medieval accounts are pretty consistent in their descriptions of the stone as made from marble, But these accounts were mostly written by people who had never personally seen it. They were picking up that marble descriptor from other earlier work. There are also accounts that describe it as basalt or meteoric in origin. And a lot of these early descriptions are also just really vague. They don't give a lot of specifics about what the stone looked like or what it was like for the king to sit on it. Some early illustrations of the Stone of Schoon show it as part of a throne or as an entire throne carved out of stone. That seems to have come from the assumption that if it was being used as part of a coronation, it must have been shaped like a throne. In the 14th century, sources also started recording a prophecy associated with the stone, usually written in a couplet in Latin. We are not going to try to mangle that Latin, but it roughly translates to wherever the stone goes, fate has decreed that the Scots shall reign. And after we take a quick sponsor break, we're going to talk about how this stone was taken from Scotland to England. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. 
cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. A series of Scottish kings followed Kenneth I, and according to tradition, they were all inaugurated at Schoon Abbey on the Stone of Schoon. I'm saying according to tradition because in a lot of cases, it's just not documented, and that is also true of a lot of the English monarchs and whether or not they sat on the coronation chair while they were being crowned. I think this just wasn't something that people thought needed to be written down <laughs> as part of the account the earliest written description, not just of the stone's existence, but also of its use in this way, is in reference to the inauguration of King Alexander III of Scotland in 1249. Alexander III died in March of 1286. Either he fell off his horse, or his horse fell off a cliff. He had only one living descendant, and that was his granddaughter Margaret. Margaret's father was Eric II, King of Norway, and Margaret was known as the Maid of Norway. There were already power struggles going on between England and Scotland. Alexander III had become king at the age of only seven. 
and his first wife, Margaret, had been the daughter of England's King Henry III. Henry had tried to get Alexander to recognize him as sovereign of Scotland, and Alexander had refused. This all happened alongside an ongoing rivalry among pro- and anti-English factions in Scotland, and at one point, Alexander was even taken captive. So it's not really surprising that when a marriage was arranged for Margaret Maid of Norway, it was to King Edward I of England's son, also called Edward, although it was under terms that would maintain Scotland as a separate kingdom. However, when Margaret was traveling from Norway to England in 1290, she got sick and died at the age of about seven without ever having been formally inaugurated as Scotland's queen. This sparked a succession crisis with 13 different claimants to the throne. King Edward I, also known as Edward Longshanks and later as the Hammer of Scotland, established himself as adjudicator to sort out all of these claims. During proceedings that took more than a year, it became clear that whoever became the next King of Scotland would be expected to be subservient to England. Ultimately, John de Balliol was selected as king. His paternal grandfather was David, Earl of Huntington, brother of Scottish kings Malcolm IV and William I. Edward I confirmed the decision on November 17, 1292, and then John was inaugurated at Schoon on November 30th. On December 26th, he swore homage to Edward I. Some in Scotland were outraged over an English king's involvement in selecting the next king of Scotland and in this whole swearing homage to England. A Scottish council of war was established to try to mitigate John's deference to Edward. Then, when England asked Scotland for military aid to support a campaign against Gascony in what's now southwestern France, Scotland instead made an agreement with the French, forming what came to be known as the Auld Alliance in 1295. If England invaded France, Scotland would invade England, and France would also defend Scotland against English advances. This became the start of the Scottish Wars of Independence, also called the Anglo-Scottish Wars. England invaded Scotland in 1296, sacking the town of Berwick-upon-Tweed and defeating Scotland at the Battle of Dunbar. After the Battle of Dunbar, Edward's troops removed the Stone of Schoon and took it to England, probably as they were returning home after the battles. It was most likely taken over land because of the risk of it being lost if there were a shipwreck. Not long after, Edward ordered a chair to be built to house the Stone of Schoon, with the stone functioning as its seat. The initial plan was to have this chair cast in bronze, but that was abandoned, probably because it would have been very expensive and Edward needed the money for his ongoing military campaigns. In the end, he commissioned the carving of a wooden chair in 1297, and it was finished in 1300. That might seem surprisingly long, given what the chair looks like today, but at the time, it was covered in ornate gilt decorations and colored glass, which are no longer visible. Although the chair was made to house the Stone of Schoon, the stone was also reshaped somewhat to fit the chair. And as we said earlier, this may have been when the iron rings were added to it for the purpose of lifting it in and out of the seat portion of the chair. Once it was finished, the chair, with the Stone of Schoon as its seat, was presented to the shrine of Edward the Confessor at Westminster Abbey, so it's sometimes also called St. Edward's Chair. We should take a minute to talk about some of the symbolism involved in this. 
The most straightforward part is that after defeating Scotland, Edward I had taken the stone that was used to inaugurate Scottish kings and he had put it into a chair that he could sit on. That was an obvious insult, and it was also meant to reinforce Scotland's place relative to England. But this also served as a symbol of England's right to rule over Scotland and establishing that England's king was also king of Scotland, placing the chair in Westminster Abbey in the shrine of the king who was at the time regarded as the patron saint of England, gave the chair a religious significance, and being home to the chair also elevated the significance of Westminster Abbey. So you may have noticed earlier that when we talked about the origin stories for the Stone of Schoon, the first written record of each story was from the early 1300s. This was also related. Each of these nations was using the stone's origin story to reinforce an idea about itself. England, that it had the right to rule Scotland, and Scotland, that it was an independent nation. Scotland had also taken this matter to Pope Boniface VIII, who issued a papal bull ordering Edward to explain England's claims over Scotland. And both of these stories were part of the two nations' respective cases. Scotland started demanding the return of the stone during its ongoing fight for independence in the 14th century, including in 1324, during negotiations for Edward to recognize Robert the Bruce as king of an independent Scotland. One of the interpretations of that Latin couplet that we talked about earlier became that Scots would rule wherever the stone was, meaning that Scotland would one day rule England. There is a whole history involving the Scottish Wars of Independence that we're not really getting into here, including everything involving William Wallace. But in 1320, Scotland issued the Declaration of Arbroath, asking Pope John XXII to recognize Scottish independence. The Pope encouraged English King Edward II to work toward peace, and Scotland's independence was recognized in 1328. But the Stone of Schoon remained in England although the coronation chair is believed to have been used in the coronation of every English monarch after Edward I had it built, it is not specifically mentioned until the coronation of Henry IV in 1399. Skipping massively ahead, the next time a Scottish king sat on the Stone of Schoon was when James VI of Scotland also became James I of England in 1603. People who believed that Latin couplet was prophetic probably felt very vindicated. Then, in 1707, the Acts of Union united the two nations into one country. A couple of other moments from the Stone's history after this point. Until it was removed in the 1950 heist, the only time the Stone is known to have left Westminster Abbey was in 1657, when Oliver Cromwell was reinstalled as Lord Protector in Westminster Hall. By 1868, a visible crack had developed in the stone, probably following a natural fault line. You can see this crack in the first known photograph of the stone, which was taken that year. Samples were collected from the stone for study in the 19th century, including in advance of the coronation of Queen Victoria. In 1884, British Army intelligence intercepted a plot by the Irish Fenian Brotherhood to steal the stone, And in 1914, the coronation chair was damaged when suffragists placed a bomb under it. By the 19th century, a Scottish nationalist movement had started to coalesce as people advocated that autonomy or independence be returned to Scotland. And that is where we finally get to the heist, which we'll do after a sponsor break. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? 
Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be, with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Support for Scottish Home Rule grew after World War I. And in the 1930s, Scottish nationalist and stonemason Robert Gray, also called Bertie, came up with a plan to swap the Stone of Schoon for a replica he had made. He reportedly made a special wheelchair with space for the stone to go in and practiced using it. I, this plan doesn't ever seem to have really gone farther than that. Also, the stone weighs 336 pounds, or 152 kilograms. Uh, so I think this idea also had some logistical problems going from, you know, not using a wheelchair to using one that had an additional 336 pounds in the seat. Support for Scottish self-government grew again after World War II. 
John McCormick, Lord Rector of the University of Glasgow, established the Scottish Convention to campaign for home rule, including drafting a petition called the Scottish Covenant that garnered about two million signatures. McCormick and Robert Gray were two of the people who provided funding for the Stone of Schoon heist. William Craig, president of Glasgow University Union, also helped plan it, but did not personally take part. Instead, there were four students from Glasgow University. Ian Hamilton, Kay Matheson, Gavin Vernon, and Alan Stewart. Stewart was the youngest of them at the age of 20, and Matheson was 21. Hamilton, who was 25, had served in the Royal Air Force, and Vernon, who was 24, had served in the Royal Corps of Signals before going to the university. So while these four folks are often described as college students, they were not teenagers. Hamilton made a trip to London in November to case Westminster Abbey, and then Hamilton, Matheson, Vernon, and Stewart all left Glasgow for London on December 22nd. They were in two Ford Anglias, one belonging to Stewart and the other rented. The trip took 18 hours, which is much longer than it likely would take today, because they were mostly on secondary roads that were not being plowed or otherwise treated for ice and snow. The plan was simple. One of them would hide inside Westminster Abbey until it had closed for the night and then let the other ones in. They would take the stone out of the coronation chair, put it in one of the cars, and leave. Things did not go according to plan, though. On December 23rd, Hamilton hid inside Westminster Abbey, but a night watchman caught him. Hamilton told the guard that he had been locked in by accident, and the watchman, who seems to have thought he was down on his luck and looking for shelter, offered him some money before escorting him out. On Christmas Eve, Vernon and Stewart tried the same thing, but they were also caught. So in the very early hours of Christmas morning, the four of them returned to Westminster Abbey. Matheson waited outside with one of the cars, while the others used a crowbar to force open a door to Poet's Corner, According to an account written by Matheson, there was some brief confusion when they realized they had accidentally left that crowbar back in the car. Most of the Abbey's doors were made of oak, but this one had been damaged during the war and replaced with pine. This made the door relatively less sturdy than the other ones, but the participants described this break-in as incredibly loud. It probably seemed even louder considering that they were trying to be quiet. Once they were inside, they made their way to the coronation chair and again used the crowbar to remove one of the panels so that they could get the stone. They damaged the chair in the process. They had planned to put the stone onto one of their coats that was on the floor and then drag it out of the abbey. But either when the stone hit the floor or when they pulled on one of the rings, it broke along the existing crack. So Hamilton picked up the smaller piece, which weighed about 90 pounds or 40 kilograms, and took that out to the car. As he was getting to the car, Hamilton saw a police officer, so he threw the piece of the stone inside the car, put his coat over it, and started making out with Matheson. When the officer interrupted them, they told him that they had just gotten to town and could not find a hotel room. The officer told them they had to move along, and they drove away. Vernon and Stewart were still in the Abbey, and they thought Hamilton and Matheson had fled, so they left on foot. But by that point, Hamilton had realized he'd lost the keys to the other car somewhere and was on his way back. Once Matheson got back into the Abbey, he managed to find the keys on the floor near the door. He also managed to haul the other piece of the stone, which weighed roughly 250 pounds, that's 113 kilograms, 
out of the abbey and into the trunk of the other car. I marvel at his strength. On his way out of London, he spotted Vernon and Stuart. He picked up Stuart, but the stone was so heavy they thought the car wouldn't make it with all of them inside, so Vernon went home by train. Matheson, traveling by herself, made her way back to Scotland without much trouble, although I did find one account that said that she was pulling away from the stoplight outside Herod's department store and the stone fell out of the trunk of the car, or as they call it in England, the boot. She noticed that this was happening, if this really, it does sound very dramatic, but she heard it fall, put it back in the, in the car, and then later left the piece of stone at a friend's house. Hamilton and the other men ultimately made their way to a field in Kent, where they covered up the stone in soil and vegetation. And then they started making their way back to Scotland as well. The theft of the stone and the damage to the coronation share were discovered at about 6.15 a.m. Christmas morning. The Dean of Westminster described this as a sacrilege, and in general, the sense in England was that this whole theft was shocking and appalling. And responses in Scotland were mixed. Some of the more radical Scottish nationalists were excited about it, but even among nationalists, a lot of people were more tempered. They thought the stone belonged in Scotland, but that it should not have been stolen that way. Of course, there were also people who were very critical. In the words of a piece in the Glasgow Herald, quote, pilfering from a church on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day is not an achievement to be proud of. None of them even knew it had been broken in the process. Uh, It was immediately taken for granted that the stone had been stolen by Scottish nationalists, and word spread about the suspicious persons caught in the Abbey on December 23rd and 24th, and the couple with the Ford Anglia in the early hours of the 25th. Authorities started a search for the stone and closed the borders to Scotland and Wales for the first time in centuries. A reward of £2,000 was offered for the stone's return. The plan had been to leave the larger piece of the stone in Kent until the Fuhrer died down, but Hamilton went back for it within about a week. Over the years, he gave multiple reasons for doing this, including worrying that the stone could be damaged by the elements since it had been indoors for centuries, worrying that it would be lost somehow, and realizing that a lot of people in Scotland were concerned about where it was. So he, Alan Stewart, and two others went to Kent to retrieve it on New Year's Eve. This also did not go according to plan. When they got there, a group of Irish travelers were encamped over the spot where Hamilton had left the stone. Hamilton and the others convinced them to move so that they could get the stone and take it back to Scotland. To be clear, we don't know if they let on that this important artifact was underneath their camp or not. It's all a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, everything that we have about these details comes from accounts written by the people involved, some of them intentionally written in a pretty uh, dramatic, cinemagraphic almost way. Um in the uh, in the movie version, there is a very stirring speech about how, you know, travelers are discriminated against and so are Scots, and we need to get this stone out from underneath you in pretty colorful language. Uh, to move on, Hamilton took the larger part to members of the Scottish Covenant Association who hid it under a floor of a factory in Bonnie Bridge, and then later it was moved to Sterling. Eventually, both pieces of the stone were taken to Robert Gray to try to repair it. He did this using three metal dowels and Portland cement, and you can still see this repair today. 
There are rumors that the dowels were hollow and that he hid a message in one of them. Eventually, the Scottish Covenant Association decided to return the stone to England. Various different reasons have been given for this, but they all sort of boil down to feeling like they had made their point and they were thinking that continuing to try to hide the stone in Scotland was a risk. By this point, Hamilton was facing suspicion for his involvement. Among other things, authorities had gotten access to library records from the university and found that he had checked out every book they had about the Stone of Schoon. The stone was left at Arbroath Abbey, where the Declaration of Arbroath had been drafted in 1320. Abbey custodian James Wishart found it on April 11, 1951, draped in a Scottish flag. While officials wanted to get the stone back to England as soon as possible, they also did not want to make a big deal about it, and they also wanted to prevent the possibility of it being stolen again on the way. So the stone's return was simultaneously high security and low-key. A limousine and a jaguar meant to serve as police escort were driven to the abbey, but the stone was loaded into the jaguar, not the limousine. As a crowd gathered around the limousine, the jaguar left with the stone, and then the limousine left after that, at a high speed and going in a different direction. Once the stone was back in England, it was initially placed in a vault for security reasons, and then it was returned to the coronation chair for the 1953 coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. There were some other attempts to steal the stone after this, In 1967, John Patrick O'Byrne set off the alarm trying to remove the stone from the chair because, unlike in 1950, there was an alarm now. Uh, He was convicted of larceny. In 1974, David Carmichael Stewart plans to remove the stone using a canvas sling and a homemade cart, but the cart collapsed when he put the stone into it. He was arrested, but charges against him were later dropped. Interest in the idea of returning the stone to Scotland was renewed in the 1990s, thanks in part to the publication of a new book by Ian Hamilton and increasing calls for Scottish home rule. Scottish campaigner Robbie the Pict also attempted a series of legal actions, including reporting the 1296 theft of the stone to the police and going up the chain from there, including to prosecutors, the Home Secretary, the Prime Minister, the Dean of Westminster, and Queen Elizabeth II. On July 3rd, 1996, Prime Minister John Major made a statement to the House of Commons that began, quote, The Stone of Destiny is the most ancient symbol of Scottish kingship. It was used in the coronation of Scottish kings until the end of the 13th century. Exactly 700 years ago in 1296, King Edward I brought it from Scotland and housed it in Westminster Abbey. It remains the property of the crown. I wish to inform the House that, on the advice of Her Majesty's ministers, the Queen has agreed that the stone should be returned to Scotland. The stone will, of course, be taken to Westminster Abbey to play its traditional role in the coronation ceremonies of future sovereigns of the United Kingdom. The response was, again, mixed. Some Scottish members of Parliament praised the return of the stone, but this was not unanimous. For example, Sir David Steele stated that the people of Scotland wanted, quote, not just the symbol, but the substance, the substance of the return of democratic control over our internal affairs in Scotland. May I tell the Prime Minister before he comes north on Friday that I hope he will not continue to insult us by suggesting that, although other countries can organize decentralized government, most recently in Spain since the death of Franco, 
we are somehow incapable of doing the same in the United Kingdom. And there were people in England who were deeply critical of the decision, including the Dean and Chapter of Westminster. That's the ecclesiastical governing body of Westminster Abbey. The Dean and Chapter had not been consulted on this decision. They did not agree with it at all. Queen Elizabeth II issued a royal warrant on the return of the stone on November 12, 1996, and a team from Historic Scotland arrived for the stone two days later. As with the return of the stone in 1951, this was both low-key and high security on England's end, done under cover of night with minimal fanfare, but with emphatically disapproving expressions on the faces of the Dean and Chapter of Westminster. The stone again traveled over land with an army escort crossing the border into Scotland at 11.05 a.m. on November 15th. There was more fanfare in Scotland, including a Land Rover with a clear enclosure so people could see the stone inside and a pipe band playing a march called The Return of the Stone. Schoon Abbey is no longer standing and Schoon Palace is privately owned, so the stone of Schoon was taken to Edinburgh Castle where it arrived on November 30th. The stone was given the same welcome usually afforded to a visiting head of state, including a 21-gun salute. It was placed in the crown room, along with the crown jewels known as the Honors of Scotland. Today, the stone is under the care of Historic Environment Scotland on behalf of the commissioners for the safeguarding of the regalia. Uh, There are plans for it to be moved to a new museum in Perth City Hall in 2024. A devolved Scottish government was established in 1999, giving Scotland its own parliament. So the Scottish and the UK governments each have specific responsibilities within Scotland. Of course, the idea of Scottish independence is still around. A 2014 referendum asked the question, should Scotland be an independent country? Two million people voted no, and 1.6 million voted yes. There was another surge in interest during the 2019 Brexit debates. Scotland and Northern Ireland both voted remain, while the total vote was for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. Earlier this year, a high-resolution 3D model was made of the stone as part of preparations to send it to Westminster Abbey for the coronation of Charles III. This revealed previously unrecorded markings that resemble Roman numerals, plus a lot of marks from wear and tear and the tooling that was done to shape the stone earlier in its history. X-ray fluorescence analysis suggested that the stone was in contact with something made of bronze or brass earlier in its history, and there are also traces of gypsum plaster, possibly from a cast that was made of it at some point. Also this year, in November, members of the environmental activist group This Is Rigged attacked the stone and vandalized its display case. Three people were charged with malicious mischief and breach of peace. That, of course, just happened, and so I'm presuming more will have happened with that by the time this episode comes out. Uh, None of the people who were involved with the removal of the stone in 1950 were ever tried. At the time, authorities said that they knew who the perpetrators were, but that it would not be in the national interest to prosecute them. All four of the people who were part of the Christmas heist have since died. Gavin Vernon in 2004, Kay Matheson in 2013, Alan Stewart in 2019, and Ian Hamilton in 2022. Also, there are a bunch of conspiracy theories about the Stone of Schoon. One started circulating in the 1970s, claiming that the stone that was sent to England in 1951 was a fake, 
perhaps a replica made by Robert Gray. Gray did make at least one replica of the stone, which was left in Parliament Square in Edinburgh in 1965. But Gray's replicas were measurably different from the Stone of Schoon, and the one that was returned in 1951 has a visible repair that matches up with the damage that participants described in the 1950s. The other conspiracy theory has been around since at least 1781, and this one claims that Edward I's army took the wrong stone from Schoon after the Battle of Dunbar in the 13th century, This conspiracy theory has been used to explain why the stone's various origin stories describe it as coming from outside of Scotland, while the stone itself seems to have been quarried locally. But none of the medieval accounts of the stone suggest any kind of switcheroo. This is really an idea that seems to have first come about almost 500 years later. Various other large stones have been cited as the, quote, real stone, including one found at Dunsinane Hill, traditionally identified as the site of Macbeth's castle in 1818. So that's the Stone of Schoon. (laughs) Do you have listener mail? I do. I have a correction about an episode that's been out for a bit, but this is actually the first time that anybody has written about it. I'm sorry, I do not know whether the person who sent this email pronounces their name Bri or Bree. We just got it this morning. Uh, The email says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I hope you are well. My name is Bri, or perhaps Bree. I have been an intermittent listener for the past few years, and as a lifelong history lover, I studied medieval and religious art history in college. Your podcast has opened my mind to so many new eras I never explored. Thank you. I have two things I wanted to share with you. The first is a correction to a few of your episodes. Sorry. The episodes about Dean Muhammad had my Indian and Filipino boyfriend banging his head against the wall, and here's why. India is actually considered South Asia, not Southeast Asia. Examples of countries in Southeast Asia are Vietnam, Thailand, and, of course, the Philippines. It is a common misconception that India is Southeast Asia, though. My boyfriend, as a South and Southeast Asian man, had to explain it to me when we first met because people often think that. We both loved the episodes, though, so thank you. The other thing I'd like to inquire about is a topic of my own research in college, which was the Jewish community in Amsterdam in the 17th and 18th centuries. I studied much of the Dutch artwork of the period, considered the Golden Age, Vermeer, Rembrandt, etc., etc., and also became acquainted with information about the Sephardic Jews taking refuge in this period following the expulsions in 1492 from Iberia. The history of this nearly forgotten world is incredible. I believe there is so much value to be found in showcasing such beautiful culture and history, especially because I have found little information outside of academic circles on the topic. I can give you both links to titles and primary sources if you're interested. It was a main focus for me, and I only graduated this May. I've attached an obligatory photo of my cat. Her name is Mango, and she loves to steal my mashed potatoes and carry plastic bottles in her mouth like a dog. Keep being amazing, guys. Wishing you all the best this holiday season. Thank you uh, so much for this email and this correction. I um, <laughs> I went back into the episode outline. I was like, did I, did I say that? I did say that. And then I went down a big rabbit hole about like who decided what was Southeast Asia and what was South Asia. Uh, because a lot, uh, unlike a lot of regional groupings, it does seem to be pretty consistent, which countries are described as which. And I did not find an answer to who decided 
uh, what is South and what is Southeast. So I'm sorry for messing that up. Um, And we have not talked about uh, the Jewish community in Amsterdam during this period. We have talked about the expulsion of the Jewish community from Iberia in 1492. So thank you so much for this. And thank you for this cat picture. This kitty cat looks a little startled to be on camera. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast or history podcast at iHeartRadio, you can find us on social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to the show if you haven't on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.